This is the Conduit Church Teaching Podcast. Thanks for joining us. It's our mission to be a conduit of Jesus to the community in front of us and the world around us, starting with the teaching of His Word. Enjoy the message. So would you open your Bibles to the book of Romans chapter 11? You all made that possible, by the way. Your generosity makes that stuff happen, where we can just continue to be a conduit of your generosity, and we will continue to do that to be a light of Jesus, right? Community in front of us, the world around us. Now, you won't see a lot of that on the news right now, because the news is a for-profit business endeavor. You understand that, right? There's not a .org behind your favorite uh, news thing. Um, I'm sorry, Shannon, I have candy in my mouth. Um, like I totally know better than that. Anyway, um, and, and the model of their business is uh, if, if they can scare you or make you angry, then you'll click on their thing and then they get paid for it, right? Some, some of us are old enough to remember, like the news was they just told you this is what happened today. And, and, and obviously they had... Um, they had a spin or a gender. I mean, in the 90s, we called CNN the Clinton News Network and then uh, became the Communist News Network at some point. I don't know, there, was, there was some pejorative we had for it, but, but, but we knew there was a spin, but they just told us what happened today. And something strange happened, which was the internet. And because the internet, now when they sell advertising to stay on the line, to stay on, on the TV, they know how many people are watching their stuff. They know how many people are reading their stuff because they can see the clicks. So these business people decided, well, we got to figure out how to do that. And the idea is the more clicks we can get, we can stay in business. It's, it's actually just a you know, capitalistic form of, of news media, legacy news media. But what they figured out through psychologists, what they figured out through just experience, is the things that make you and me click the most are the things that make us angry or the things that make us scared. Now, on occasion, they'll get us with one of those soldiers coming home from battle uh, and seeing their kid for the first time, you know, uh, so that they'll get us with those. But for the most part, that's not what you get angry about. That's not what you share. Think about what you maybe have even shared in the last year and the percentage. It's anecdotally true. It's absolutely true, which is why when I refer to news now, it's different than Walter Cronkite. It's, it's just not the same thing as it used to be. In May of 2020, the BBC, I don't know that you'd ever see this on a, on a U.S. Uh, news outlet, but the BBC, May of 2020, so do the math in your head of what was going on in May of 2020, published a story that was saying, hey, the news, how it changes the way we think. Like, and they used, the news, meaning what we're talking about, MSNBC, CNN, Fox News, legacy corporate news, how it changes the way we think, which would include NPR and BBC. And what they have figured out through studying, through psychologists, through sociologists, is that uh, this is what news editors have figured out specifically, that one of the potential reasons the news affects us so much uh, is called the so-called negativity bias, a well-known psychological quirk, which means we pay more attention to all the worst things happening around us. That's what they've figured out. And in this piece, they go on to say that those flaws are more noticeable than their assets. Uh, we, flaws are more noticeable than their assets uh, 
why losses weigh on us more heavily than gains, and why fear is more motivating than opportunity. Governments even, listen, build it into their policies, torn between pos- uh, providing a positive or negative incentive for the general public. The latter is much more likely to work to control behavior, is what they're saying. And by the way, just yesterday in the UK, uh, an investigation is unfolding into what the UK calls their nudge group. And it's an official government agency whose only job is to uh, psychologically manipulate people into doing what the government has asked them to do. It's been around for 10 years. Billboards and so, but COVID uh, restrictions really brought this out in people. And, and what the, the BBC is saying, which is, hey, this, uh, now I noticed they didn't say we're sorry, by the way. There was no, and boy, we're real sorry about all this. Uh, <laughs> my bad. Um, it's like they're writing about it like it's someone. Other newspapers, of course, do this. Not us. Of course, other people. Uh, but it goes on to say that the news is accidentally warping our perception of reality and not necessarily for the better. Another example is our perception of risk. Take global tourism. I travel a lot in mission work. As you might expect, people don't usually fancy going on holiday where there is political instability, war, or a high risk of terrorism. In some cases, though, the news is a source of direct advice on these matters, conveying government instructions to say, come home amid a global pandemic. But even when there is no official line to stay away or rational need to, it might be influencing us through our subconscious biases and flaws in our thinking. It's happening in, in the economy, it happens in companies, and it happens in traveling, because these stories that we're just being permeated with are not just reporting this is what's happening, they're also predicting the future of what could happen to you if you don't listen to this. It's, it, the, now it's fear and I'm angry. Um, and they talk about the idea that we're just really bad at perception. We're bad at predicting. We're bad at predicting the future. And it goes on to say, oddly, when you ask people how they actually feel after these life-changing events, it's speaking of studies that were done about whether you've won the lottery or, or been paralyzed, like these life-changing events, it turns out they have far less of an impact on our emotions than we expect. A classic 1978 study compared the happiness of those who had recently had their lives transformed by winning the lottery or becoming paralyzed. The lottery winners were no less happy than the controls and only slightly happier than the accident victims. In short, we really don't know our future selves as well as we think we do. We have this idea that we know exactly who we're going to be in the future, exactly how we're going to feel in the future, and psychologists, sociologists are all saying, well, we're really, really terrible at this. He goes on to say this, this happens sometimes during a crisis. Thompson, which is one of the psychologists, explains that right now, many people are likely to be fixated on their future distress. In the meantime, this mistake is steering us toward unhealthy behaviors. If you have a really big threat in your life that you're really concerned about, it's normal to gather as much information, right? It's normal to do that, that you can understand what's going on, but this leads us into the trap of overloading on news. Now, what this is showing us is that one example of how bad we are at knowing what the future is, knowing how we're going to be in the future, and who can we trust with our future. Romans 11 is 100% about the future of Israel. It's about the integrity of God. 
if I'm going to trust my future to somebody, don't you think it would be great if it's somebody or some entity or something that I could trust? Right? And, you know, I'm just spitballing here, not pointing fingers specifically, but in the last couple of years, have we figured out that there might have been some experts that didn't get it right? That maybe we, we trusted some people that, that thought they knew, but they didn't, because you know why? They can't predict the future. They haven't been to the future. They haven't been back to the future. Gen X, baby, you know. The 20-year-old's like, I literally have no idea what he's talking about. Look, integrity, I think John Maxwell said integrity is who you are when nobody's looking. True, true enough. But the thing that the internet age has given to us is the reality that integrity is also who you are when everybody's looking. You see, where we are right now, especially our Christian leaders, especially pastors, especially in our world, or in our companies, whatever, everybody's watching you. Everybody's watching your social media. Everybody's watching how you're acting. There, there, there's videos waiting to get you, you know, at the store if you do something wrong. So in, integrity is not just watching what you who are when nobody's looking, but who you are when everybody's looking. Because in the world we're in right now, there are things that are being asked of us to do that are maybe immoral, that are maybe ungodly, and everybody's watching, and so do we just do it just to go along because we want to make somebody feel better? Is that integrity? You see, Jesus Christ says, Hebrews, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus is who he is when nobody's looking, and he is who he is when everybody is looking. And that, brothers and sisters, is who we can trust with our futures. Much of the anxiety, much of the fear, much of the struggle that most are experiencing right now is an inability to know what's going to happen in the future. And so you've cast some view of it based on information you've gotten, information you might have or might not have. And now your life is based on what you think is going to happen. I've heard it said, by the way, that there's, uh, there's two days of the year you can do nothing on. Yesterday and tomorrow. And the truth is, much of what we're Carrying is, what are we going to do tomorrow? I can't do anything tomorrow. I can only do something today. The news is screaming at us right now. Another variant now. That's not for today. That's for tomorrow. Corey Ten Boom, um, this past week was Holocaust Remembrance Day. And one of the things she wrote so many decades ago was that worrying is carrying tomorrow's load with today's strength carrying two days at once. It's moving into tomorrow ahead of time. Worrying doesn't empty tomorrow of its sorrow, it empties today of its strength. So I wanna share with you in the few minutes we have that Romans 11 shows us, and I will say that it shows us for Israel, okay? Israel has a future, and that we can trust this future because of the integrity of God. Israel, there's a future for Israel. And by the way, brothers and sisters, I want you to know, there's a future for America, for our country. 
I believe that the enemy would like to thwart it. I believe that the enemy would like to wash away what it is. But I do believe that this city on a hill, for whatever reason, that God allowed it to be that here, more missionaries have been sent into the nations from this country than any other country combined, dead full stop. More investment in global needs in feeding the poor and clothing and have come from this country than any other country. I believe that God has a plan for our country and I'm believing along with many of you that that plan will be fulfilled and that he will continue to move along in it. But just like there's a national plan for Israel, a national plan for America, there's a plan for you specifically, individually as Jesus people as well. And that future is secure. That's the first half of this, it's secure. That future isn't just secure, but there's fruitfulness that's going to be in that future. You're not just going to be existing, but there's a fruitfulness in that. Again, God said it. He, there's integrity. I can believe it. He's been to the future. I haven't been. So I can know that my future is secure. He shows us here. I can know that my future is going to be fruitful. He shows it here. And the way that he seals it all is that it's all been paid for. My future is paid for. Those of you that have mission trips coming up in the coming months and whatever, like, you know, I got to pay for this trip. I got to come up. I got to raise the money. I got to, this future that I'm telling you about, this one paid in full for us. So the future that is secure, the one that we can trust, that we're, there's certainty in how this is going to unfold for us. In verse five, he actually talks about in Romans 11:5. five, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace, right? At this present time, he's speaking 2000 years ago, but in time, and if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, uh, grace would no longer be grace. Our future is secure because of grace. Our future is secure because of what Christ has done. But he's saying here that verse one, back up to verse one of 11, did God reject his people? Speaking of Israel? No, by no means. I'm an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. Verse two, God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel? And he begins to show us here that Israel's future is secure. And he goes backwards in time to say, look what happened with Elijah. God had a plan there. God had a remnant there. And that's what I want to show you, that in our secure future, the reason we know it's secure is God always has a remnant and God always has a plan. He always has a remnant and he always has a plan. And at the time of Elijah, there was a remnant. See, do you guys remember the story of Elijah? If you go to Israel with us in the future, we've been there, Phyllis was with us, you get to go on top of Mount Carmel. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm on slow roast right now. I'm getting, I'm getting tenderized up here. I don't, uh, um, when you get up on Mount Carmel, you see where Elijah, there's some sites in Israel like, mm, maybe this is it, maybe this is it, whatever. But then there are some you're like, no, this, is, this one's it. And this one is it. This is Mount Carmel. This is where Elijah stood. And when you think about what happened with Elijah, he wasn't in like the Ammonites or the Edomites. This was happening in his country with his people. They had turned their back on God. Not only had they turned their back on it, they had turned their back toward Baal worship. And they had prophets there and they were, King Ahab was in charge. He was doing terrible things to people. 
And so Elijah was feeling a little alone, a little scared, a little isolated. He didn't have Twitter, but he sure knew that people didn't like him, that people wanted to kill him. And so he's kind of hiding out. And in 2 Kings chapter 8, a guy named Obadiah comes looking for him and saying, hey, Elijah, where are you? King Ahab's looking for you right now. He can't find you anywhere. And Elijah's like, you know, tell him, tell him I'm right here, bro. I'll come. And, and Obadiah's like, look, don't do that to me. Don't, because if I tell him you're here and then the spirit of God takes you somewhere else, he's going to kill me. And two different times Obadiah says, he's going to kill me. Two different times Obadiah's like, look, man, I did everything I was supposed to do. I hid 100 prophets. I hid them in caves. Don't do this to me, God. I've done everything I was supposed to do. I'm all alone. Don't kill me. Now, Elijah keeps his word. King Ahab finds him. And by chapter 10, you see the, the, the great con, you know, contest between the prophets of Baal and they're dancing around the prophets and Elijah calls down fire, the whole thing. And just a few hours later, after Elijah seeing everything he just saw, he saw the miraculous fire from heaven. He saw the prophets of Baal slaughtered. And he is now hiding in a cave away. And what he did is what I would like to call an Elijah complex. He copped an Elijah complex. He says it there in 2 Kings 10, verse 10 and in verse 14. There's nobody but me. I'm all alone. I, and, and let's have some empathy for him, right? They, they threatened his life. But there's nobody but me was a factually inaccurate statement. Obadiah, there were at least 100 prophets that had been hiding in caves. So just by my count, we're at 101. It's not only Elijah. And God says to him, which is what Paul reminds us of, is not only are you not alone, I have reserved for me 7,000 other people who have not bowed. Take a nap. Here's a sandwich. Now get off your butt and get back into town. We have work to do. You see, the danger for us in a culture that is adverse to the gospel, which parenthetically has been every culture in the history of man throughout history. Okay, we have had a little different, we've had a little bit of a, a, a reprieve here in America for a while, but recently it's felt a little more anti-gospel, right, anti-Christ. But when you get into that situation, your temptation is to think, there's nobody but me. I'm going to take my toys and go home. It's over. It's an Elijah complex. It's pride. It's fear, maybe, right? But isn't fear just trusting Satan's power more than I trust God's power? And of course, God had mercy on Elijah. God sent Elijah back into town. And Paul is saying for the people of Israel, for the people of the church at Rome, for the people of the church at Conduit, don't cop an Elijah complex. I have a remnant. I have it in this country. I have it in Canada. I have it in Indonesia. I've got a remnant around the world. I always have a remnant, 
and he always has a plan. And that plan was unfolding for Paul even as he was writing these words. Because Paul was saying, hey, look, uh, God, God's got me. I'm part of the remnant. And part of the plan is that I'm over here supposed to be the apostle to the Jews, and I keep finding myself as the apostle to the Gentiles. I'm, I'm a Jewish guy. I'm more qualified than any of them. But for some reason, I keep finding myself preaching to Gentiles because the Jewish people keep beating me up and kicking me out of town. I was having a conversation with a pastor friend of mine this week about how different. So if you're new to Conduit, you don't know this, but pre-pandemic, Darren had a lot of frequent flyer miles. I spent a lot of time in other nations with, with many of you in this room. And what was interesting about that, so uh, let's say one of them, for instance, October 2019, I was at an airport in Nepal, and, and this guy, uh, little guard, he was about this tall, he was a full-grown man, but he was not a very big one, uh, came up to, I was doing something, whatever, he came up to arrest me. And he was yelling at me, and he's got his gun out, and, and I'm in the airport, and I'm just like, you know what? No. And that's literally what I said, like, no. And I, I didn't, he didn't know any English, and I didn't know any Nepalese, and so I'm just, and he's like, come on, come on, and I'm like, no. No, no, no. At one point, my hand is up, and I turn around, and I walked away, and he walked the other direction, and I thought, you know what? That's a new trick that I had not heard of before. And I was... I, <laughs> I'm going to try that one again. This locked up abroad could have ended up a whole lot differently for me. But, but here's the thing. I, I share that because that moment, he made me angry. Okay? I, I, was, not, I was displeased. And, but it, it didn't hurt my feelings. Now that said, in the last two years here, when I read things about me on Twitter that I know are either half true or not true at all, when I read things that are said that are, that are mean, that are dispirited, and they're from my community. Even if I don't know them, they're, they're my people. They're from this region. They're from my country. And it's interesting because that doesn't make me mad. That hurts my feelings. Paul was talking about his people who were his people who should have known. And maybe, I mean, look, I suppose if I was beaten and stoned, it probably would have made me mad. But think with me, he's a Pharisee, former Pharisee. These are former classmates of his, probably. These are former people that worked at the temple with him. Do you think that might have hurt his feelings a little bit? Like, it just feels different at home than it feels in India. It feels different here than it feels... In Haiti, a few years ago, there was a riot that took place outside the church, and uh, we had to get on a motorcycle, get out the back door. It was a long night, but, but even that night, like, I wasn't hurt. I was just mad. Like, are you kidding me? We come down here to help you people. You, you, you. Like, I just want to get in their face, you know? Um, but here, they haven't punched me. They haven't thrown rocks at me here. They've just said mean things about me here, and it hurts my feelings. And there's a part of me that's like, oh, that's Paul, but Paul is saying for those people that should have known, God still has a plan for them. He had a plan for the brothers and sisters in Israel. And you know what? He has a plan for those here in America 
that maybe don't understand what God is doing, that maybe didn't understand why we chose to reopen our doors when others didn't. And I got super convicted about that this week. I actually called our, one of our prayer warriors, Donna Van Leer, and I gave her a couple of names and said, could you put these people on your prayer list? Jesus said, pray for those who despitefully use you. Pray for those who speak evil of you. Bless them, do not curse them. And you know, I hadn't done that yet. I'm embarrassed to admit that. You know, I didn't, I, I wasn't, I don't think I was angry. Maybe I was angry. I, but I hadn't really prayed for them by name. And so when Paul talks here about Israel to them, they are enemies on your account for the gospel because they were still trying to trap them. They were still trying to beat them. They were still trying to tear them down. But what do we do for our enemies? What did Jesus say to do to your enemies? Love them. And I would take it one step further and say this. I've said it in our church before, but it bears repeating. I understand the language Paul's using, enemy. They're an enemy for the sake of this. But who is the real enemy? Satan. These are hostages. And in no war do you shoot hostages. You try to free them. And we're not going to free them by being uh, angry at them. We're not going to free them by shaming them. We're not going to free them by a really well-crafted, condescending tweet against them. We're not going to free them by shaming them. We're going to free them by allowing the one that freed us to free them. Just like we talked about last week. I'm not the hero of this story. I'm just the guide. Let Jesus be the hero. Let him do the rescue. I'll do the praying. There is a remnant and there is a plan. There was a plan for Paul with his brothers and sisters in Israel because there's a future for Israel. There's a plan for us here in America because there is a future for us here in America. And our job is to, just like Paul, bless them, don't curse them, pray for them, understand. And the reason we can do that is that not only is our future secure, right? Because God's been there before, God's integrity, God doesn't change his mind, God's not arbitrary, God's not capricious, we can trust him. And one of the things we can know about our future is that's not just secure, but that it's fruitful. He starts using this language in these next few verses about, it's, it's horticulture language, branches being grafted in, branches being cut off, and others grafted in. And what is the purpose of a branch on a tree? To bear fruit. Jesus in John chapter 15 said, I am the vine, you are the branches. I've called you, right, to bear much fruit, fruit that will last. What does Galatians 5 tell us the fruit of the Spirit is? Love. Now, some of you are thinking, Darren, you forgot long-suffering, patience, joy, kindness. But look at the language of Galatians 5. The fruit, singular, of the Spirit, singular, is singular, love, comma, Galatians 13 tells us love is patient, love is kind, love is long-suffering, love, love, joy, okay? Love is the fruit, peace, long-suffering, patience, kindness. Love is the fruit, right? Joy might be the taste. Uh, long-suffering might be the texture. It's the description of love. The, the, the fruit of the Spirit is one thing, it's just love. 
And then the rest of it is just what love is, the experience of love. And that is the fruit that we are called to bear here, to remain attached to this branch. And he has been so kind to allow us to be grafted in where Israel belonged, knowing that there's, by the way, a future for Israel. They're going to get grafted back in again, right? And they will bear that fruit. But for us, for now, our, we are grafted in, and our job is to do what any branch's job is to do, which is to hang in there. So if you've been around conduit long enough, you're tired of this, because I've, I've shared it a few times, but in the early days of, uh, of Arrington Vineyards, um, did anybody else, I mean, I don't know about you, Salvo, like, but we, when they put Arrington Vineyards out there, did anybody else go, what the world are they thinking? Who, who's going to drive all the way out here? <laughs> Some dear friends of ours were part of starting that vineyard. It was uh, Kip and Valerie Summers. And they had a, a vine planting party, which is basically a way to get their, uh, their Williamson County friends to come do free work. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> were you there, Salvo? It, it worked. <laughs> People were planting vines for him for free. And over the years, over the decades, you know what's out there right now? Vines with branches. And you can see it right from 840. I challenge any one of you driving by on 840, watch those vines as you drive by and see if there's a single branch freaking out trying to produce fruit. They're not stressed about it. They're not faking it. They're just hanging in there, attached to the branch. Jesus, if I abide in you, right, you abide in me. It's the language of horticulture. Just stay attached to Jesus. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. Our future with Jesus is secure, and it's fruitful. There is a plan for Israel that includes them being fruitful. We can, you can go back and listen to the Revelation series last year and figure out what that is. But the future for them is fruitful, and our future is fruitful here. Because look, God doesn't change his mind. The gifts and the callings, it says here, of God are without Repentance is the King James Version. He does not change his mind. He did not change his mind regarding Israel, and he is not going to change his mind regarding you. And his mind for you, his purposes for you are good. He has chosen you. He said in John again, I didn't cho- you didn't choose me, I chose you. I've chose you to come and to bear much fruit, fruit that will last Keep attached to Jesus. It's never been more important. It's never been more imperative than it is right now. The temptation is to attach myself to the news feed. My te- my, uh, I'm tempted to attach myself to Drudge Report. I'm tempted to attach myself to NPR or whatever you're listening to on the way in. Attach yourself to Jesus. And from there, fruit will last And the way that we know this and the way that we are guaranteed it is that it's 150% paid for in full. He says in verse 33, he starts talking about the depths of the riches of wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments, his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? You know the answer to that question? Me. <laughs> I've been his counselor. I've had lots of advice for God. God, why don't you do it this way? 
Hey, God, I, I know you got this thing, but have you ever thought about... I've been his counselor. <laughs> and it's me, like a little one-year-old, trying to counsel a grown man who knows things I can't know, who sees things I can't see, and who, and I love this, and this is, man, you talk about a gospel time bomb about to go off right in this room. Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? These are rhetorical questions. The answer is nobody. Nobody. From him, through him, for him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I was listening to um, an interview with uh, Jordan Peterson this week. I know, I know, I know. Um, and uh, when you're on a plane, you have a lot of time to, you know, sit there. So I put it on like 1.7 speed and, you know, next thing you know, we're there. But I heard him say, does anybody know who he is in this room? I'm just curious. Okay. A few of you guys. He kept saying this. And then I thought about this. And then I thought about that. And then I thought, and then I thought... There's like four hours of that. And I was listening, and this guy's going so deep into, he's talking about biblical stories and biblical narratives, and then I thought about this, and then I thought about that. And I, I've, I've realized, you know, where have I heard this before? It was the book of Ecclesiastes. It's 11 chapters of, and then I said to myself, and then I said to myself, and then I said, and then I, which is, I, then I thought, and then I thought, and because that's all thinking is, is a conversation with yourself. And I'm listening to Jordan Peterson, and I'm thinking, man, he is so close. So close. I think it was Warren Heisenberg that said, the first drink from science brings you to atheism, but at the bottom of the cup, God is waiting for you. I think Jordan's getting close to the bottom. <laughs> but here's what Solomon, the wisest man in the world, the richest man in the world, the man who got everything he always wanted and was still him, 11 chapters of then I thought this, and then I thought that, and then I thought, and maybe you in this room are thinking that too, and then I thought this, and then I thought that. At the bottom of that glass is God. And at chapter 13, or 12 of Ecclesiastes is the conclusion. He says, verse 13, now that all has been heard, I've ran my mouth for my whole life. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the duty of all mankind for God will bring every deed into judgment including every hidden thing whether it is good or whether it is evil. Some of you are super close to the bottom of your cup. Some of you have been drinking the cup of philosophy. Some of you are drinking from the cup of relationship. Some of you are drinking from the cup of uh, theology. You know, you could be, I've met a lot of really, really theologically sound people who basically are theological porcupines. You make a lot of great points, but nobody can touch you. <laughs> Keep drinking. Keep drinking. And eventually you're going to come to the only thing left is, is God. 
My friend Cleo in North Africa, who is a Muslim who converted to Christ decades ago, said that the only way out of Islam for him was deeper into Islam. Because the more he drank, the more he drank, the more he got to the bottom and realized this was all a sham. There was nothing there but Jesus. Jordan Peterson was even talking about like the crucifixion and love. He's like, he's saying out loud, you, you try to come up with a better philosophy than this in such a short amount of time. And you can't really just say this was made up. This is really important stuff. I'm like you're right because it's true. And the fact that Jesus paid it is, that's what the bottom of the cup is. I can't drink anymore. I was texting back and forth with, with Chris Talley about uh, the, the weight of a cup of water, which is not very much, right? Unless you're holding it for hours and hours. And then in the Jewish case, there's 613 cups. <laughs> and if one of them falls, the whole thing falls. You weren't meant to, it didn't feel very heavy until you realize it is heavy. And my invitation for this is you can keep drinking it or you can just pour it out and get to Jesus right now. You don't have to wait. Because at the bottom of that cup is Jesus. And at the bottom of that cup is a Jesus that paid it all. And now your future is secure. Your future is fruitful. If you just trust in him, if you just remain in him and step in and follow him. And I'm so grateful. Because it's based on his integrity, not mine. When I was in third grade and I got lost in the woods, I remember I was making, this is a long story, but I made a big deal with God that day. God, if you get me out of this mess, I'll serve you for the rest of my life. By the way, it wasn't the first time I was going to make one of those deals. I apparently do dumb stuff and found myself in many situations where I was in danger. Um, I broke that promise within minutes of being found. <laughs> Aren't you glad that your salvation doesn't depend on you keeping your word? Amen. On your integrity? Because if it did, we're all cosmically screwed but it doesn't. It depends on his, which is why no man can repay him because we can't even begin to make the payment. My invitation for you today, trust in Jesus today. Drink his cup, pour this cup of work out. Trust that your future is fruitful because it's paid for. Heavenly Father, my brothers and sisters, I pray today, Lord, that you would give them wisdom and insight into your word. And Lord, for those in here right now that need to call upon your name, might they do it right now. Repent of your sins. Turn around. Dump out the cup. Drink from the cup of integrity. Drink from the cup of Jesus, of living water that will never thirst again. Pray that you speak to their hearts right now. And for all of us in here, Lord, that we just throw all the cups away and quit picking them back up and follow you with the living water, not with our work and our effort. We can trust you. Your integrity stands. In Jesus' name, amen.